It's absolutely lovely to be with you this evening. It's a tremendous privilege and pleasure for Lindsay and I. Uh, we have followed the, the birth and early growth of City Church with interest and delight, and also what has been happening under God in Emmanuel, and give thanks for both churches, for the mother that has born the daughter, and for what is now two sister churches who love the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ and want to see people one for him. And north of the river in Dublin, not just south of the river where there's perhaps more gospel witness, but north of the river. It's really great to be here. When I was wondering about uh, what to preach on, my mind came fairly quickly to 1 Thessalonians. Let, let me just uh, remind you of the situation. Uh, just very quickly, Paul, uh, you will see if you look up Acts 16 and 17, Paul went to uh, the Thessalonians for three weeks only. And uh, it was after a particularly rough ride for him in Philippi. And even in Thessalonica, it was, hi, hi welcome, come in. Uh, it, was, uh, it was difficult, there was conflict, there was persecution. And one of the things that Paul worried about, because Paul was not only a great evangelist, but he was a great pastor who cared about those whom he'd led to Christ and wanted to see them discipled, was that after only three weeks with these young Christians, he was desperate to know how they were doing, and he tried very hard to get back to them, uh, but as he said, Satan prevented him. It doesn't explain how that, what, uh, what that meant, but that's what he says in the, in the letter, that he just tried to get back and see them and uh, just couldn't. So in desperation, in the end, he sent Timothy to find out how they were doing. And Timothy came back with, joy and delight that they had grown as Christians. They're obvious, uh, they were obviously authentic believers who loved the Lord Jesus, had received the gospel with joy, and were showing gospel fruit and becoming an example to other believers. And so Paul writes 1 Thessalonians with delight that these young Christians, whom he wondered how they were doing in this uh, tender church plant in its early days, uh, and discovers they're thriving. Brothers and sisters, I came to City Church this morning and discovered it's thriving. And isn't that tremendous? It's lovely to see a fledgling church plant grow and being blessed by God. And it's wonderful to see what God has done in Emmanuel and here in City Church. May God bless both works. And if anything good comes out of tonight, it would be surely that we should pray earnestly that God may bless these two churches and that we see many, many more people won for Jesus Christ and built up in their faith. And God's people said, that's a bit underwhelming for Dublin. <laughs> for Dublin, that's underwhelming. And God's people said, amen. amen. Well now, um, uh, Lindsay and I have been here for just a few days. When we come to Ireland, uh, we always, as a Dubliner, I always enjoy a little bit of extra time. And on Friday evening, we went to see Once the Musical. It's great. It's hilarious. It's, it's terrific. It's much better than the film. But one of the things at the, at the end that struck me very much, it was said, Dublin, 
that wonderful city where it's possible to dream in. Dublin, that city with a thousand disappointments that still goes on. Dublin is a fantastic city. As a Dubliner, I might be a bit biased. I might even go so far as to say best city in the world, but that would be probably biased. But one of, let me say, with absolute objectivity, one of the best cities in the whole world. Um, but it's a city at a crossroads, isn't it? A fantastic city would still something of the kind of provincial capital about it, something of the country feel about it, yet a cosmopolitan melting pot, nations coming in and out of here, lots of opportunity to influence all sorts of people from all over the world. Uh, and yet a city which is in danger of drowning in a tide of materialism and secularism. And the me culture the culture that is all about me and my, my rights, my experience, me, me, me. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, as a city and a nation where institutional Christianity has often misled or distorted pure New Testament Christianity. It's a city and perhaps a nation, but certainly a city at a crossroads. It is essential that at this crossroads time for Dublin, that Dublin rediscovers the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is a fantastic bit of good news, the gospel which means good news. And I thought as I thought of Dublin's need, I thought uh, again of 1 Thessalonians because arguably 1 Thessalonians is the first letter Paul wrote in the New Testament, and it, in it he bears his heart a lot about what he feels, what he believes about the gospel, and what he feels in love and concern for the Christians in Thessalonica. Uh, listen to John Stott writing about the situation. He said this, in these chapters, more perhaps than anywhere else in his letters, he discloses his mind, expresses his emotions, and bears his soul. No one who is engaged in any form of pastoral ministry or danger lay can fail to be touched and challenged by what Paul writes here. No one can be failed to be touched or, and challenged. If John Stott is right, and I believe he is, none of us should leave this evening without being touched and challenged by what Paul writes in this chapter. Uh, another commentator wrote about it, nowhere do we get a more human and lovable Paul. So it seemed to me that if we were going to get to the heart of the pure gospel and understand the heartbeat of the New Testament in early Christianity, like we might all love the Liffey, but we'd be much fonder of swimming in it up near its source, than, um, you know, just down the river here. We need to go back to the pure waters of early Christianity, New Testament Christianity. Are you all right, brother? Hey. Rock. Is this? Yeah. Rock on. Um, anyway, um, thank you for whatever you've done. 
was I? Yes, back to the pure waters of the New Testament. And I want us to look at the passage this evening under four headings. For I, I think it tells us more about Paul as a missionary and the heartbeat of the early church than many, many other passages in the New Testament, though we could go to many others. Uh, the four headings I want us to think about is, first of all, Paul's message. Secondly, Paul's motive in preaching the message. Thirdly, Paul's manner of how he went about preaching the message. And fourthly and finally, the means he used in propagating the message. First of all, I want you to notice with me that what Paul says here is a very important thing to hear in our confused and confusing world. In verse 2 and in verse 8, I hope you've got a Bible and you can follow me. Verse 2, verse 8, and verse 9, he refers to his message as the gospel of God, the good news of God. And then he refers to it uh, twice in verse 13 as the word of God. See, what Paul is saying is, I'm, I haven't come, I didn't come to you with my own ideas. I'm not a, one of the, the many uh, peddler preachers that goes around to line their own pockets or with some uh, new insight or some invented insight. I've come with you with a message from God. God has finally, the God behind the world, has finally completely revealed himself in the person of his son, borne witness to by the apostles. As the writer of the Hebrews says, God spoke in many, many ways at different times in the past, but in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. This is the gospel of God. It's not my view, says Paul. I am a messenger with a message from God. It's not my message. It's God's message. And as it's God's message, it's tremendously important that you take note of it because it's not me fundamentally, says Paul, that's speaking. It's God who is speaking. I've got a message to deliver to you, and it's from God. If the good news of the gospel is God's message, it's tremendously important that the church of Jesus Christ does not tamper with that message either by adding to it, or subtracting from it, or in the arrogance of the 21st century, adjusting it to make it more politically correct to modern ears. No, it's the gospel of God. And if it's the gospel of God, it carries its own power. And it's not for us. It's the power of God's salvation, as Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 1. It's not something, therefore, we can tamper uh, with at all. I don't know if you know uh, Jonathan Swift's wonderful uh, imaginary story called The Tale of a Tub, which has uh, three brothers. Imaginary, uh, Jonathan Swift imagined that they were, they were given the gospel, one added to it, one subtracted to it, and one, one only kept it faithfully. Well, that's a good reminder. Swift was right. <clears throat> we can't tamper with the gospel of God, and we mustn't. And in a, an age of pluralism, where you'll go into Smith's or Eason's or wherever it is, Eason's in O'Connell Street, and see a wealth of different voices calling for attention, saying, follow this, discover yourself, do this, come on this journey, a multitude of modern voices saying, 
you know, as somebody said to me, uh, in a rather put down kind of way, uh, Bishop Zoride, for you, uh, Christianity turns you on, it's golf that does it for me, as if you're talking about a level playing field. Not talking about a level playing field, it's the gospel of, of God. And in a, in a pluralistic world, there are even some in the professing church who hold a view that I will describe in a moment that they certainly shouldn't. And that is, if I can use an analogy and betray my own uh, favorite breakfast cereal, it's almost as if Jesus is the special K on the, on the you know, in, in the supermarket, where the special K, the best, best of the breakfast cereals, but actually you could pick a number of other ones. It's just that we think that Jesus is the special K. No, no, that's not what pure Christianity teaches. That's not what Paul taught. That's not what the New Testament teaches. It's what the New Testament teaches is this is news about the gospel of God, and there's nobody on the shelf at all other than Jesus. For there is no other way to know the living God because God has revealed himself in his beloved Son. And if God has taken the initiative to do that, however, we may, however much we may respect other religious views and want them to enjoy their freedom in a democracy and respect them, nonetheless, ultimately, they're cul-de-sacs in terms of knowing God because God has revealed how to know him in his Son. See, this is the gospel of God. A friend of mine wrote some time ago, John Allen. He said, one of the problems about the church in the West at the moment, even lively Bible-believing churches, is sometimes we suffer from a loss of nerve. We need to recapture just how wonderful, as we'll see in a moment, the gospel is, and how important it is because it is God's good news. Well, sometimes we can talk about the gospel, and you may say to me, yes, but what is the gospel you are talking about? Well, let's see how Paul defines it here, and I think he defines it in three ways, and it's immensely important. Look at chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is good news that calls for us to repent. That is to stop in the direction we drift in in life, to wake up and turn around and turn back to God, because instinctively and naturally, you and I, because we're sinners in God's world, drift away from God and to repent and turn back to Him. To turn back from idols, to turn away from idols. There are plenty of modern idols, aren't there? Fame, popularity, money in the bank, success, relationships, whatever it may be that are used as a kind of God substitute sometimes, and people find that they don't, um, they don't meet their deepest needs. I have a friend who was an accountant in the city of London. <coughs> he rang me up one day and he said, will you come and talk to me? 
Um, he had uh, 186 people working for him in an accountancy firm. He was the senior man. He said to me, I move around more money than I, even I can get my head around every day. And he said, I've climbed to the top of the tree. I've fulfilled all my ambitions. I have a Ferrari as an investment in the garage. I only take out once a year. I said, I'll look after it for you for the other 364 days. He didn't seem too enthusiastic about that. Um, but he said, I've climbed to the top of the tree, and it's a lonely place up here. I have more money than I know what to do with. I fulfilled all my ambitions. What's life all about? He said, my kids hate me. I'm in a broken, a potentially broken relationship. And has Jesus got anything to say to me? I said, oh, yes. You'll never find real life without him. You'll never discover the reason for which you're made without Him, for He is God's good, good news for you. And I remember as I sat, and we sat in, a, in the outside of a, a pub in London, the tears ran down his cheeks into the beer. A man whom in worldly, materialistic, and secular terms had everything but had nothing. So the gospel calls us to repent of, turn away from idols, things we put in the place of God, things that can have their proper place under putting God in His proper place. That's number one. Turning away to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, Jesus, who came in humility, will return, whom He raised from the dead, not the, ultimately the victim of Calvary, but the conqueror of death, at Calvary, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is immense good news, but it's serious news. Because Paul says, you see, there is a day of accounting. We have been made by a Creator who will one day call us to account. And on that day, you and I deserve by nature, and uh, by the way we are, and by the decisions we've made, and thought, word, and deed, we deserve God's judgment. Which one of us would like even our nearest and dearest to know sometimes what goes on inside our heads? See, even sometimes, not only do we think and say and do the wrong thing, but we do the right thing for the wrong reason. When I was a young minister in Cheadle in South Manchester, I looked down the street and I saw a young Pathfinder boy, a guy in the Sunday school of about 12, and right down the street, I could see him. He was at near a panda crossing, and there was a blind lady needing some help across the street. And I was very impressed. He was a, a guy who had made a profession of faith, and I knew as a young Christian. And uh, I saw him go up to this lady, introduce himself, did all the right things, gave her his arm so she, she could put her hand on his, and he helped her across the street. By the time I got down the street, he had gone and she had gone, and I didn't see him until the following Sunday. I said to him, you know, you won't have seen me down the street, um, but I was very impressed at seeing a young Christian work out his faith in loving concern for other people. And he blushed a little bit, and he said, thank you very much. And I said, do be encouraged, you know, it's great. Following Sunday, he came up to me, he said, Wallace, can I have a word? And I said, sure. He said, I've been troubled all week because I just need to tell you the whole story about that incident. 
He said, I saw you coming down the street. And I thought you'd be impressed if I helped the lady across. See, sometimes we do the right things for the wrong reasons. God calls us to trust in His beloved Son, to repent and turn to Him, because He is the only hope on the day of accounting which we all face for us to be forgiven. That's why He came, that the day of judgment might not hold fear for us. That's the first amazing, wonderful good news of the gospel. And then the second thing is in chapter 2 and verse, tw uh, verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Uh, it's funny, isn't it? it? Sometimes, I don't know if it's true in Ireland. Uh, it used to be in my time, but it's certainly true in England. Sometimes if people can't pick a hymn at, at a funeral service, they pick that old hymn, The Day Thou Gavest, Lord, is Ended. It's a bit overused. But there's a line in that that I absolutely love. So be it, Lord, thy throne shall never, like earth's proud empires, pass away. God invites us to a kingdom that won't fall. We've seen in my lifetime the destruction of the Iron Curtain and to some degree the Bamboo Curtain and all kinds of kingdoms and political powers come and go. God invites us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, which is an eternal kingdom, to know His reign and His rule, to find His fatherly care and to know His love, and to share His glory, that is the very goodness and blessing of His nature Himself. And then thirdly, to define what the gospel is here in Paul, in chapter 3 and verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ. It's all about a relationship with Jesus. It's not about religiosity. It's not about pulling yourself up by your own moral bootlaces and hoping that somehow you can uh, um, impress God. None of us could ever do that. God's standards are perfection. And only one person faithfully kept God's standards. That was His beloved Son. And He went to the cross for us. And He died on the cross so that as what some older theologians have put it, and I love the way they've put it, is that on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, as our sin-bearer and substitute, He took all my sinfulness and yours on Himself. And to those who come to Him in faith with thankfulness for what He has done for them, he gives to them His righteousness. It's all about a relationship with Jesus. It's all about being in Him so that on the day of judgment, God doesn't see us but sees us in Christ. And as He loves His unique beloved Son, so He loves us in Him. It is fantastic good news. And these folk had received it. Look down at verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted not as the Word of men, but what it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you. Look at what had happened in them that convinced Paul that they were genuine believers. Uh, look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit and will full conviction. 
You saw your sinfulness. You saw your need of a savior. You were convinced that there was only one person who could do that, and you turned to him. The Holy Spirit was at work magnifying Jesus and drawing you to him, opening blind eyes that you could see who Jesus was and is and what he had actually done for you. And the effect of that accepting of Jesus as Savior and Lord is that they became, uh, you became imitators of us, verse 6, and of the Lord. You accepted suffering with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We're prepared to suffer for Christ. Thirdly, uh, verse 7, you became an example to all the believers. And then fourthly, verse 8, the good news of the gospel, they were evangelistic, went out from them. Deep conviction of their own sinfulness and a turning to Jesus, a fruitfulness that showed in um, them accepting even tough challenges with the joy of knowing that their hands were in the hands of Christ, uh, of being example the way they were beginning to live to other Christians, even older Christians, and they were evangelistic-hearted because the gospel went out from them. So much for, and I better move on, I won't be as long on the other points, but so much for what Paul says about the message of God. It is a fantastic message. It's a message that Dublin may think it knows, but doesn't and needs to hear again, for there is no other way to God. There is no other way to find forgiveness of sins. There is no other way to discover the reason for which you or I have been made. There is no other reason to find, no other way to find purpose in life and the sure hope of heaven, the message. Secondly, Paul's motive, and we can be quicker here. Look at verse 4. We'll need to read it back a little bit. Uh, verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, but with a pretext, or nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness, nor did we seek glory from people. And Paul says, look, you know, nothing would have kept me going in the gospel work except that I had a message from God, borne witness to by him. It wouldn't have kept me going. I didn't come and share the gospel with you because of any financial gain, and I certainly didn't, didn't do it for my own comfort because there was suffering involved. Now, Paul said, I've been entrusted with a message, and it's such a wonderful, life-changing message. I have to tell people about it because it's changed my life, and it can change yours too. We've been entrusted with God's gospel, and therefore we're trying to please him, not other people. Nothing, says Paul in verse 2, would have kept us going after Philippi. Do you remember the story in Acts 16? Uh, read it when you go home. They were beaten with rods, and the Romans knew how to beat them with beat people with rods to within an inch of their life. They were uh, publicly humiliated, and and just just think of that for a moment. You, you know, you're around with with Mark and and uh, Eddie and. Uh, here and here, and you're on a little uh, evangelistic mission, and you've been in Wicklow, and you get beaten up very badly, and you travel up the coast. In fact, 
you're so badly beaten, you're not sure you will actually fully recover your health again. And you come to Dunleary. You know the first thing I would say? It was me. Lord, it's time I had a sabbatical. Just a little break, just a little time off, and what does Paul do? He goes into the marketplace again and he preaches the gospel. Nothing hinders him. And what he's saying here is, if it wasn't of God, I certainly wouldn't keep at this. But because it is of God, I need to. And then the, the manner, the way he put him, uh, the way he uh, did, did the gospel preaching. Look at verse 8 and 9. So being affectionately desirous of you, in other words, I was desperate to come and see you and how you're doing, we're ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our lives. One of the things that has impressed me about these two churches, Emmanuel City Church, is the pastors don't just share the gospel, but their lives with people and their homes with people. That's what Paul did. For you remember, brothers, our, our labor and our toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. In other words, Paul put himself out in the service of Christ. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? The man who led me to Christ, <clears throat> who has just recently gone to glory, those of you who are older might just remember, you'd have to be as old and ancient as me, but Di Lewis, who used to run the CSSM in Greystones, and he told, he told the story about his neighbor, whom he was desperate to be able to communicate the love of Christ to, and tried everything and just got the brush off always. And then one day he leant over the garden fence, and he saw that the, his neighbor had a dinghy, and he said to his neighbor, do you like sa sailing? And the neighbor said, I, yeah, I love sailing. Are you interested in sailing? And Di said, having never sailed at all, ever. Uh, I could be, he said. And then the neighbor said to him, would you like to come after a bit of a conversation? Would you like to come and crew with me for the next, uh, next weekend? And Di said, Yes, I'd love to come and crew. He told me himself, and I've heard him repeat this to others, that he spent the whole week going to the library reading up how to crew in a dinghy. He hadn't the first idea how to do it, and he was very worried about it, but he was so concerned about the well-being of his neighbor that he wanted to build a bridge to him. And uh, they went out the next weekend. They had fun. They had a great time, and the neighbor said to him, would there be any chance you could come out again with me next week? The following weekend, he led his neighbor to Christ, and then his neighbor's wife to Christ. Why? Because he was willing to put himself out in the cause of the gospel. Paul says, I was willing to put myself out. I wasn't sort of, it wasn't ivory tower evangelism as a church Warden once said to me when I was a young minister, the bell rings, they can come if they want to. <laughs> and I said, that's your serious understanding of evangelism, is it? And he said, well, they know where we are. Let me tell you, that sort of recipe today will just kill the church. Our call is not to wait for people to come to us, but with a care for the world, to put ourselves out to love people and to build bridges to a lost world. To put ourselves out, and as Paul says here in verse 7, 
And he uses both a father and a mother analogy, and I've just seen my daughter looking after um, our second grandchild, who's just a year, as a nursing mother looks with tenderness after their child. So Paul says, I looked after you as a, as a pastor. I was so concerned about you. And it's true, isn't it, if, if we observe parents, we put up in our own kids, with our own kids, in doing things that we don't easily put up with in other people's kids. Paul says, with the, the care of a mother and with also the care of a father, verse seven, 11. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you, encouraged and charged, exhorted, encouraged and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul's message, the gospel of God, fantastic message of, of a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom of forgiveness, of new life, of the hope of glory. Paul's motive in how he went out uh, in doing his ministry to please God and not to be approved by men. The manner of how he went about it was to put himself out. And finally, the means by which he exercised this ministry, verse 2. And this is really the point I want to, us to get to, is the church in the West needs to discover, again, a holy boldness. As you know, says Paul, we had boldness in our God. It's a bit difficult translation for Dubliners like me, isn't it? Because we use the word bold in a different way, don't we? Do you still do that? Bold as in naughty or bold as in brave? We have such flexibility of language. Um, but actually, Paul means here boldness as in daring. Or maybe on this occasion, I love the ESV, but on this occasion, maybe the NIV is a little bit more helpful. With the help of our God, we dared to tell you the gospel. I, I want to ask you as a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ, to think of your life, the life of your church, and to ask how daring are you about seeking to win a lost world for Jesus. I think my observation is that some churches just carry on without much daring, thinking they're doing evangelism and aren't really. You see, real New Testament evangelism means daring. It doesn't mean being stupid. It doesn't mean being awkward or making enemies needlessly. It means a loving, caring concern to reach out for pe to people to build bridges of loving concern for them and to gently and respectfully but clearly share with them the good news of the gospel. When were you last bold for the Lord Jesus? At work, down your street, or dare I say it, even in your family? Bold. If you're anything like me, there are more opportunities come for the gospel than I'm sometimes willing to take. The trouble is not the lack of opportunities. The trouble is the willingness to take it. You know, I said this recently at a big conference in Northern Ireland. I um, preached my heart out for two, uh, two sessions, and I went home on the plane, got home, settled down in, uh, in the plane, and I thought, well, really, I'm tired, Lord. 
I ended up having one of the best conversations with the person in the seat next to me who was searching for Christ, who, says, who said to me, it, it started by my just saying, you don't have enough room for all your cases. Would you like to put one under my feet? And she said, yeah, but you won't have much room. And I said, but I'm only little. And out of that, she told me about how she, she got married the previous summer, young executive. She'd gone to a church and wanted to know about Jesus Christ, hadn't been offered any help, then saw a church that was advertising an alpha course, went along. She said to me, I said, what's your impression having been an alpha course? And she said, well, faith is really up to you, but it's made me think. Well, I said, actually, it's really not so much up to us as up to what God thinks of it. It's up to, she said, well, that's an interesting. I said, it's not so much what you feel about it, what God feels about it. And the way God feels about it is the world that he made is in rebellion against him, but he loves us so much, he said to his son, that's what I want to hear, she said. We spent the whole rest of the flight talking about the gospel. And I got off the plane and I thought, Lord, you're just absolutely wonderful. Why was it that on that plane packed that we ended up sitting next to one another? And it rather challenged me that when I'd been preaching about this very thing about being daring and then switched off for a little nap on the way home, God said, hang on a minute. You can have a nap in an hour or two, but you've got a job for you to do just now. Brothers and sisters, I want to say to you, City Church and Emmanuel, do not lose your daring for Jesus Christ. There is a lost world out there in this city and in this country. Do not lose your daring for Jesus Christ. With the help of our God, we dared, beaten almost to within an inch of his life in Wicklow, metaphorically speaking, and in Dunleary, preaching the good news of the gospel yet again. Great, isn't it? This is authentic early Christianity that is captured by the amazing good news of God, the incredible love of God for us, the concern how he put himself out to send his son, the cost to God of sending the Lord Jesus to be our sin-bearer and substitute. And he calls us into his kingdom, into his glory, to rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins, the sure hope of heaven, the personal experience of knowing the living God. There is no other road to travel and there is no other way to heaven. May God give us grace and humility with daring and in love to reach out and build bridges to a lost world. But as I close, maybe there's somebody here who has yet not responded as these Thessalonian Christians did to the good news of the gospel, not yet come to know Jesus. I simply beseech you not to waste another day, but to come to God, the one who loves you, who made you, sent his son to save you, and invites you into his kingdom and glory. Let's pray together.
Lord, we're just so grateful for your love, just so grateful for the gospel of our Savior, and we pray that you will speak to us from your word and write it upon our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.